A message from IBM. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, or generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. A special welcome to the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. Convening under the theme Rebuilding Trust, this is the 54th annual meeting. The World Economic Forum gathering in Davos is a fixture on the annual calendar of many of the world's most powerful business leaders, as well as politicians, tech gurus, the occasional veteran pop star, and a lot of hangers-on who just fancy rubbing shoulders with the global elite. Its founder, Klaus Schwab, hopes this Alpine January jamboree will set the political and economic agenda for the year ahead. We have the capacity to turn the challenges into opportunities. The meeting's critics often point out that it can be a bit of an echo chamber of high net worth do-gooders and liberal elites who stubbornly don't get the point about the rise of populism across the Atlantic and in Europe. But still, Davos rolls on and continues to attract some of the most powerful people in the world. So, naturally, power play had to be here. Welcome to Power Play, Politico's transatlantic podcast, where we talk to some of the world's most powerful folk on either side of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week, our team has taken the train to the home of that famous magic mountain. Next stop, Davos Dorf. Next stop, Davos Dorf. We're bringing you a bumper daily power play this week, four podcasts with a great array of guests and panels. So please do follow us across the week on your podcast platforms. And to get us off on the black ski run, I asked some of Politico's stellar reporting and analysis team to lay out what they think's at stake as leaders gather amid multiple raging wars, economic jitters, and as the Iowa caucus in America brings the prospect of a Trump return. Joining me today are Suzanne Lynch, Politico's global playbook author. Hi, Suzanne. Hi there. Great to be with you, Anne. If you're not reading Suzanne's daily playbook from Davos, you're really missing out on the inside track. So we'll add a link to it, to our show notes. And with me too is Alex Ward, Politico's national security reporter, based in Washington, all the way to Davos. Hi there, Alex. Hi, glad to be with you. Also a transatlantic big beast at Politico, Nahal Tuzi, our senior foreign affairs correspondent. Great to be here. So Suzanne... I'm going to take us back to basics on day one. What is the point of the WEF? And do you think it kind of hits its mark? WEF is one of the big mysteries of a corporate and political life. People just keep coming. We're in the 54th year here. It's in this tiny little town of Davos in the Swiss Alps. And they do continue to get the big beast. They have got CEOs and they've got big political leaders, more than 60 heads of state. But in many ways, I think what's interesting about WEF is this nexus between finance and politics. You don't get that that much in forums. And I find that here, that's where the value is for both politicians and business leaders. So a lot of business leaders, frankly, are here to do business. A lot of politicians, frankly, are here to do business. There's a lot of side meetings going on, uh, people trying to get investment. I saw, for example, the in 
Indian delegation. Yes, and Modi is not here. But you know what? There are a lot of Indian business leaders here. And they're here to try and get investment, try to put their best foot forward and try to put themselves on the global landscape. Briefly, how does it work? Let's imagine you're an A-lister from a government that wants to get itself on the map. Hey, for instance, we're going to come on and talk about it. Say China at the moment, which wants to show it's out and about in the world, Saudis equally and, and many others. What is it that you want? Where do you want to be in order to get the edge on your competitors? Well, one element is that you want to get a, your moment on the podium. There is a, a very kind of traditional Congress centre here where traditional kind of politicians give traditional kind of speeches. That's what Davos is about. But really what's happening in the sidelines, I mean, I'm just coming to you from a meeting with someone in this kind of secret corner I didn't know existed in the Congress centre where people were eating smoked salmon and, and drinking nice coffee and there were meetings going on all over the place. And they were meetings between uh, senior executives and political leaders or investors. So there's a big kind of VC community here. There's a big tech community here. They're trying to see, can they make synergies, get investments here? So I think the aim is to get on that podium, but also to get invited to the top dinners. So, you know, all the consultancies, all the governments, all the uh, big banks, they're having behind the doors dinners here um, with A-list guest lists. And you need to make sure you're getting on one of those. I'm trying my best, Dan. So far, I've got to maybe one or two good cocktail parties, but I am still open for invites. Uh, she's taking one for the team there, isn't she? I mean, while Suzanne's having smoked salmon in the elite bit of the Congress Centre, some of us around the table had a leek sandwich in the media village. Not that I'm in any way resentful. But look, what are the main themes here, officially or unofficially, that matter when we get beyond this vanity of who's in which lounge with, with whom? Alex Ward, what's on your to-do list here that you think this is going to change at Davos or at least will be pointing a direction that matters to the world? Well, first, I know for sure that Suzanne knows every dark corner and cranny of Davos, so don't trust her that she, it's not one she knew, didn't know about. The thing I'm most focused on is what is the U.S. delegation, political delegation, um, here to do? And when I was here for my first time last year, and the whole thing was, America, we did it, baby. You know, Ukraine, we helped save Ukraine. The economy's doing a little better. Biden's, you know, feeling himself a bit more. America can defend itself on the world stage. The U.S.-European relationship is on better track. There was, of course, the kerfuffle over the Inflation Reduction Act and all the climate subsidies. But while that was a big issue, it was kind of a side thing in terms of the U.S. messaging. This year, it's a lot different. This year, the U.S. is here to kind of reassure European allies that America is still around. Um, of course, we've got the election back home, between, which looks like it's going to be between Donald Trump and Biden. We'll see if that is the case. But as of this moment, that's what it looks like. And then um, you've got the fact that there is a massive bill that they're trying to get through Congress, which would provide billion in military aid for Ukraine, border security, Israel, etc., which as of this moment looks like it will pass the Senate. But in the House, it's unclear. So that means it wouldn't get to Joe Biden's desk. So you've got a very, very small congressional delegation here, only two senators and about five or six uh, House members kind of taking on the brunt of the meetings. And then finally, you've got Jake Sullivan uh, the National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Antony Blinken, both giving speeches in, in the way that Suzanne mentioned. Uh, but they're going to most likely give milk toast, you know, state of the U.S., state of the world speeches. They're not here to necessarily make a point of here's what we're going to do. And Nahal, do you see it in a similar way? There's a slightly more on the back foot or even defensive vibe coming from the U.S. here at Davos. So what do you think they want to achieve? 
Absolutely. I think they are trying to find their bearings in a lot of ways, given the uncertainty at home. And a lot of that has to do with what is a major political issue around the world, which is the political divisions inside the U.S. and how that is making it so hard for U.S. officials, lawmakers, et cetera, to make basic decisions on a lot of things. Uh, and so that's affecting the rest of the world. And that's part of a bigger picture, which is about how there's so many elections around the world this entire year. So we're talking about a group of people on this stage, some of whom may not be in office that much longer, and some of whom are brand new. And it's just going to be a huge number of elections, a lot of uncertainty. And so the U.S. can make all the reassurances it wants right now. The Biden administration can. But the people here are wondering, um, how long are you going to be around? Because it could be a completely different, wildly different administration next year. And one thing that can't be ignored, Suzanne, is the Iowa caucuses in the U.S. happening just as the forum kicked off. In fact, and you and our colleague Zach Warmbrot have been exploring how the business community is feeling about the potential of a Trump return, which sort of went from being uh, likely to happen to now looking almost like it's nailed on in the heads of many people I talk to here. That is a big difference to last year, isn't it? Absolutely. The timing is is intriguing. I mean, this is the moment I think that the rest of the world is realising a Trump comeback may happen. It's the uh, first big event, the Iowa caucuses. I previously was a correspondent in Washington. I was in Iowa four years ago, so I'm I'm not feeling envious when I see those temperatures, which are about 12 degrees lower than it is here in Davos. But look, on a serious note, the Trump effect is huge. Interestingly, last week, we reported in Politico about a meeting between Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, and Donald Trump and some EU officials that happened here on the sidelines back in 2020. And I spoke to people in the room there, and frankly, they were shocked at what happened in that meeting. He basically made it clear that America was not going to be there uh, for Europe forever, that it needed to do more spending on NATO, etc. So he was a disruptive force here. There's no doubt about it. However, there's also, of course, a complete hypocrisy and a contradiction. There are actually some Trump acolytes here around us. Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, fresh from a new round of Saudi investment, is here at Davos. We've got other former administration officials, people like Gary Cohn, people like Anthony Scaramucci, of course, not a big fan of Trump now, but still they're here. And I think um, Zach, my colleague, was reporting that, you know, a lot of corporate America is making peace with this, is ready for the Trump return. And, you know, they might not say it here loudly, but some of them are okay with it. And it depends who you ask. You've got a big present here by Gulf leaders. I think they have traditionally had a strong relationship with Trump. Yes, the kind of European leaders, the European establishment are wary, but I don't think that's the case across the board. And indeed, Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, Briefly, communications director for Donald Trump is still very connected in that world. Will be joining us on one of our shows that week. Isn't that right, producer mine? Indeed, yes. There you go. All the best people are dropping by here. We'll continue our discussion of the impact of that Trump surge here at Davos after this. A message from IBM. AI has the power to automate. But if it's using untrusted data, can you trust the results? Your business doesn't just need AI. It needs the right trusted AI for your business. Introducing Watson X, a platform designed to multiply output by tailoring AI to your needs. When you Watson X your business, you can train, tune, and deploy AI, all with your trusted data. Let's create trusted AI for business with Watson X. Learn more at ibm.com slash Watson X. IBM. Let's create. Welcome back. 
This is a day when the two sides of the Atlantic will definitely be looking at each other with beady eyes. We've got the Iowa caucus results coming up. What do you think, Alex, this means for the big picture, for those stories like Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, dealings with Russia, the small stuff that is preoccupying global leaders? How much bandwidth can they still really focus on that? We're talking about people being on the main stage here. They go off stage. They don't know if they're going to be coming back in the administration or indeed if it's going to be the same administration. Yeah, just to build off the point that Holly made from earlier, you know, it's unclear, you know, when when the Jake Sullivans and the Tony Blinken speak this year that they'll be able to come back at next year's session. As we're recording this, you know, the Iowa caucuses uh, have yet to happen. But as all the polls seem to show, Trump is going to win it, which will then color the next day's Davos. Okay, it's official. Like we've got something on the board. Trump is on the way. And even though he's there's a closer gap in New Hampshire, he's looking like he could sweep almost all the way through. So what's interesting here is that he is the backdrop again. And again, every event I go to, he is the backdrop. But what's interesting, you talk to the congressional delegation and they will say, well, we've got other big things we've got to talk about. We've got to talk to businesses about funds for Ukraine reconstruction. We've got to talk about how we can work together to uh, help out Gaza after that war ends. We've got to talk about how to continue support for Ukraine, how to keep pushing back against Russia. And then it leads to the question of, okay, but for how long, though? And do you want to make bets with this administration when you've got a possible Trump administration just in the background? So everything just feels urgent and also in a state of stasis. Now, President Zelensky is coming to Davos hoping to redirect attention back to the war still raging in his country and indeed with some renewed ferocity since the start of the new year. There's a big Ukrainian delegation that has become, if you like, the Davos standard. But is there any sense that this is successful or that bringing these people together here really can have an impact on what's happening in the theatres of war in Ukraine? I think that the sense is that he would be foolish not to try This is a good group for him. It's not simply political leaders, but also business leaders. And a lot of the focus among the Ukrainians here is going to be about getting business leaders to think of Ukraine as a future potential investment destination for rebuilding and other reasons. So he has to do something. He can't not do anything. But is it going to change the perception right now that Ukraine and Russia are effectively in a stalemate? I don't think so. I don't think no matter what he says, that's going to change that reality on the ground. And one other point I just want to make, you know, the uncertainty around the U.S., people notice that. And, you know, what is one thing that's a little more certain is that the Chinese government is going to be stable and is going to be around. And the Chinese have sent a big delegation here as well. So for a lot of the people who are looking around and seeing, well, we don't know who's going to be in charge of the U.S. next year, they're thinking, well, maybe the Chinese might be an alternative to some extent. At least that's how they're presenting themselves. And in fact, the Chinese delegation, I believe it's at least 10 state ministers, including the Chinese premier is also here. It's big enough that that's got the U.S. worried to the point where they wanted to make sure that Secretary Blinken is going to have a meeting with a Swiss official just to at least make Switzerland feel like they are as loved as the Chinese love that. You're being quite modest because this was one of your big scoopy pieces, wasn't it? Uh, I tried, yes. <laughs> and and the reason it's so important, I thought reading it, was we're not used to seeing Switzerland brought in in any way. I mean, it is obviously the host of this rather glamorous affair here at Davos, but to actually have Switzerland involved in the power play, did that surprise you now? 
Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's both about Bern and about Davos. You know, the Chinese are here and they're in the Swiss capital. They're going to be uh, in Davos, of course. And so people know about the Davos piece. But there's a lot of concern on the U.S. side that the Chinese are making a big play for Switzerland's love. And of course, Switzerland is famously neutral. Uh, but come on, is there really any, any such thing as neutral in international relations? And I also there's another aspect here because Switzerland has behind the scenes been very involved as a conduit between the U.S. and Iran over the years. And is there a sense that they're feeling a bit less? out like ooh are these Gulf countries you know getting in in that scene now about like kind of brokering peace what about us like a Gulf country that starts with the letter Q oh yeah they've got a big presence here Qatar yeah playing an increasingly kind of vocal role obviously in the Middle East at the moment but uh, yeah so I'm wondering you know is that some of the what's going on there from the Swiss point of view but uh, to come in on the European side of things I mean exactly what you're saying there guys about the challenge now for Zelensky to remain relevant essentially we also have to note that it's not just the US that's going to the polls this year, also Europe. There are European Parliament elections in June and they're important, but they're particularly important because that's going to trigger a change at the very top of the EU. So Ursula von der Leyen, who's been the European Commission president for five years, we don't know if she's going to be back for another five years. Now, it's very likely that she will. She's seen as a very strong commission president, but we're going to have a change at the top of the European Council. The EU's top diplomat is going to change. This is going to be huge. We could also see an increase in the far right or anti-EU makeup of the European Parliament. That's more than 700 directly elected members of the European Parliament from all over Europe. If that was to change, if that political view was to change, well, then that could have implications on the shape of EU policy, including when it comes to Ukraine. So all is not rosy either for Ukraine when it comes to Europe. We've seen Viktor Orban, the Hungarian uh, leader, trying to block funding for Ukraine. So they're also going to have to keep their eye on that ball to make sure that Europe is continuing to buy in and to support Ukraine. Alex, I know you've been working your sources hard on what's happening in the Israel-Gaza conflict, and clearly there is bad blood now between the administration and Bibi Netanyahu. What are you picking up on what this means for the conduct of the conflict in Gaza and the next steps? Well, you do have the Biden administration telling Bibi Netanyahu's government, look, you're losing the moral high ground with much of the world. Uh, It's going to get a little bit harder for the U.S. to keep supporting you, although I've seen no real sign um, in a change in in the Biden administration's policy towards Israel. But you are seeing a change within the Democratic Party, which could potentially maybe kind of sort of put some pressure on Biden to change course. Now, that's it manifested in one way with a resolution by uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who It's a complicated resolution, but basically it would lead to a questioning of the weapons that the U.S. sends to Israel and and how they use them in places like Gaza. But you are seeing some Democrats starting to say, hey, maybe we should either create new conditions on aid to Israel or impose ones um, that already exist in statutes. So at this case right now, I think, you know, you have a Biden administration that's upset with the way Bibi's conducting this war that they feel they're not really being that listened to by um, Netanyahu, but as of this moment, unwilling to really do anything to change his behavior. And Nahal, the Red Sea, those airstrikes, US-led, Brits involved, uh, and some others, but it's not absolutely clear whether this was one lot of airstrikes on Houthi rebel targets to just try to free up those shipping channels and keep the goods and ships moving, or whether we're in for a longer conflict there as well, just in case we didn't have enough going on around the world, your view. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of the strange thing about the situation in the Red Sea is, did it actually escalate or did it escalate to de-escalate these airstrikes, right? So the question now is, 
is this going to be a broader Middle Eastern war? Or did the move against the Houthis that the U.S. and its allies took actually bring down the temperature as people try to figure out how or whether it's worth responding? I mean, the other aspect, of course, here is that the Israeli offensive in Gaza is extremely controversial, particularly in Europe, with a lot of European leaders very critical of the Israeli position. So you've got leaders like the Belgian prime minister is here, the Spanish prime minister, the Irish prime minister. Those three countries have been leading the criticism in Europe. They're all here this week. So I think we will see some focus on the humanitarian side of what's happening in Gaza also. And of course, the Israeli president Herzog is here as well. So let's see what kind of bilateral meetings are happening on the side. Thanks to Suzanne, to Alex and Nahal for setting us up on what's to come as we battle through the snow and ice up here on the Magic Mountain. In our forthcoming episodes, you'll be hearing from top politicians, business figures and thinkers on everything from AI to geopolitics. So be sure to follow Powerplay wherever you're listening so you get all of our episodes as soon as they publish each morning. The producer here with me in Davos is Christina Gonzalez, our executive producer for audio, and Peter Snowden is our senior producer in London. I'm Anne McElvoy. See you tomorrow with another edition of Powerplay. A message from IBM. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, or generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance.